0: Okay, I'm glad you're here um we We haven't actually had a, a a new talk for the last couple of weeks because it was Pesach. and so so uh there's a lot to discuss, lots to catch up on so we might be sort of like uh uh, uh jumping from topic to topic, but just different highlights i i I want to hit just to um just to uh just to share some some thoughts just kind of what I've been learning what I've been thinking about so uh Let's just begin with something that, that uh, is, is very striking. It doesn't happen every year, I should tell you, but it did happen this year. And it, it does happen, you know, on a regular basis. But this year it did happen, which is that um, we finished reading the, 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 uh, the special um, Torahs of Pesach in, you know, in terms of the, the Torah portion that we read in Shul. And the first Parsha that we're reading afterwards now, at least uh, outside of Israel, is Ahre Mos, which is about Yom Kippur. So in other words, just to make it succinct, we're going from Pesach to Yom Kippur. You know, so what's the, what's the connection between Pesach and Yom Kippur in this context? Like, why are we getting... Because, you know, whatever's going on in the Parsha is going on in the world. So why, why is Hashem giving us Yom Kippur right after he's taking us out of Egypt? This is, this is the question. Um, so I'd like to say the following, which is, which is that when, when a person is a slave, they're not really responsible for their choices. Meaning to say that, that whatever the master says, that's what the slave has to do. So you know, in Torah we have something, a concept. Um, someone called is called an ones, which means that they're coerced into doing something. If a person is coerced into doing something, meaning to say that they didn't do it from a standpoint of free choice, they they had to do it because circumstances forced them to do it. Then you then then you're not um, you're not as responsible. For, ...for the wrongdoing. Or perhaps you're not even responsible at all. You know? So... Of course we have a very famous huge exception to this. Which is that if, if someone puts a gun to a person's head... ...and says... ...worship an idol... ...or commit this act of um, sexual immorality... ...or I will kill you... ...unless you kill this other person. For those three th- For those three things you're not allowed to do those, those things that he asks. You have to die rather than do that act of immorality or worship idols or kill another person unless you'll be killed, right? But everything else you could do. Not that it's great to do it, right? But, but you're not halakhically obligated to give up your life. So in other words, this is sort of like just a, another articulation of if someone is forced to do something you know, it, it's not the same as them doing it voluntarily. But if a person is a free person, and then they do something, then it's coming from the standpoint of their free choice, so it's something else. So what happens on, what, what happens on Pesach? On Pesach, we go from being slaves to being free people. That means that there's a transformation on some level that's happening to us, which means that Hashem is showing us that we're in control on some level, in terms of at least the choices that we make. We're in control of our situation. But that can be very scary. Because if you're not really in control of your situation, then you can say, well, you know, I didn't choose this and I didn't choose that. I was made to do this and I was made to do that. You know, um, a person doesn't have to take responsibility for their life and for their actions. That's one of the reasons why, you know, you you don't see it written as much these days, but but for a while, and I think it's still true, by the way, for a while people really pounded this in various, you know, magazines and newspapers, which is just sort of like this um, victim mentality that people have today. And the victim mentality is the same idea of being a slave, meaning to say that because I'm a victim of my circumstances, I'm not really responsible for the choices that I make. Because and they live their life from the standpoint of um, victimhood. So therefore, since therefore, I'm never responsible. Now, my dad, who was um, who was a psychologist, used to say, and this always um, like made a very big impression on me, which is that people um, allow themselves to be in relationships, different types of relationships, because those relationships are answering a need. And he's talking from a psychological standpoint. Um, it's, it's often much more complicated than this, but just to share what, what he would say. Um, bless you. And so... For instance, let's say someone uh, is in a relationship with someone who speaks very nastily to them. They're mean to them, right? So, so, um, so it could be that that person has a very low self-esteem. And so that the person who is speaking very rudely to them is actually answering a need for their person because the person feels bad about themselves, and this allows the person to continue to feel bad about themselves. So, so in, in other words, in a very sort of perverse way, the victim, quote-unquote, is actually getting something out of the relationship. They're reinforcing their own negative low self-esteem. And, and so they actually are benefiting from this relationship in a, in a very strange way. This is what we would call a dysfunctional relationship. <laughs> right. So... So anyway, um, this, this mentality of victimhood allows a person not to be responsible for their choices because they say, I'm a slave, I'm forced into these circumstances and I don't really have free choice, right? So Pesach comes and Pesach says, no, you do have free choice and you are free, but now this creates a brand new problem because if I'm free then I'm scared to make a decision because I might make the wrong decision. And now, this is what I would like to say is why God is giving us Yom Kippur right after He's giving us Pesach. Because the Yom Kippur is telling us, you know, we have a lot of different associations with Yom Kippur. A lot of people feel like, oh, this is the day of judgment, right? But that's not Yom Kippur, that's Rosh Hashanah. Or people think, Yom Kippur is the day of fasting, the, the day of afflicting my soul and everything like this. But no, that's, that's, that's a, a smaller aspect of it, but that's not the essence of it. The essence of it is, it's a hugely happy holiday. The Gemara says it's one of the two happiest days in the whole year, along with Tuba'a. Why? Because it's the day that you get cleansed. Your whole soul is getting like a deep washing, Right? So Yom Kippur is a very happy day. It's a day of forgiveness. So now let's put all the pieces together. Why is Yom Kippur, why are we getting Yom Kippur right after Pesach? Because Hashem is saying, look, now you're free. Now you can make a choice. But don't be paralyzed by the fact that you might make the wrong choice. Because there's forgiveness. I know that you're human. And by the fact that you're human, you're going to make a mistake. That's the definition of being human but there's forgiveness. So don't be paralyzed. Don't be paralyzed by this notion of making a choice. Be free, make choices, be proactive. And no, if you mess up, there's tshuva, there's forgiveness, there's Yom Kippur. So this is kind of how Hashem is. Remember, Pesach is happening in Nisan. Nisan is the first month of the year. So in many ways, we're starting a new year right now. That's why it's springtime around the world, right? Springtime means like newness, like like now it's all starting again. So God is, so to speak, sending us off in the air, off into the year, saying, "You're free. Make choices. If you mess up, there's forgiveness. It's okay. You know, just go forward." Okay. So that's that's thought number one. Um. So let's. Uh, Let's let's go further. There, there's something in um, that I noticed. Uh, well, you know something. We're we're in the month of Er right now. We just started today's Rosh Chodesh. We just started this new month called Er. And Er um, is a very special month. It's the way it's spelled in Hebrew is Aleph Yud Yud Resh. And there, are, uh, there are many kind of like. Interesting aspects to the spelling of ER. I'll just tell you two. One of them is it stands for Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and Rachel. Right? That's, that's one. Aleph, Yud, Yud, Resh. That's one. Another is that, that this is a month of healing because it stands for remember, when you have two Yuds together, that's, that's one one articulation of God's name. Yud and Yud is a, is a spelling of God's name. Um, it's actually a contraction. Um, of Aleph, Dalad, Nun, and Yud, and Yudke, Vavke. The first of those letters, um, I'm sorry, um, no, 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 it's Yudke, Vavke, so it starts with a Yud, <laughs> and then Aleph, Dalad, Nun, and Yud, and it ends with a Yud. So when you have Yud, Yud, it's really a contraction of those two names of Hashem, okay, which is like heaven and earth, God is master of the infinite and also, everything within borders as well. So, it's a very encompassing um, abbreviation, Yud and Yud. So, anyway, so ER is Aleph Yud Yud Resh, which is, um, the Rebbe say, is, stands for Ani. That's for the Aleph. Yud and Yud is Hashem. And the Resh is rofecha. I am God, your healer. So, so, ER, they say from this, is a month of healing. So that's that's a, a very positive understanding. Now I want to show you something. Um, uh, I'm basing this on a Torah that I heard from Reb Shlomo, and I'm going to add to it. So everybody knows that each of the months has a different um, permutation. They call it a tsiruf of the yud kevavke. Yeah. So what is the what is the permutation of the name of Hashem for the month of .ER, Right. So before we get to that, uh, uh, let me just do the month of Sivan first, because the n- the month after Er is Sivan, and when you th- this is the Torah that I heard from Reb Shlomo, and then we'll backtrack to Er and you'll see how it fits in. But let's get the premise first from Reb Shlomo. So Sivan is the next month that's coming, and of course Sivan is um, is is the month that we get the Torah, right? That's where Shavuos takes place and just to kind of just kind of give you the bigger picture for a moment these 3 months Nisan Er, and Sivan are really one block because it's telling one story okay in Nisan we have Pesach we're leaving Egypt then we're traveling to Mount Sinai okay and so all of ER is traveling through the desert and then we get to Mount Sinai in Sivan and we get the Torah Okay, so those three months are telling a story. So Sivan, we know that Harsinai, when we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, it was like the wedding between heaven and earth, the wedding between God and the Jewish people. Okay? So what's the permutation for the month of Sivan? It's Yud Vav hey Hei. Okay? Yud Vav hey hey. So Reb Shlomo said he, he said a very beautiful... Um, kind of drusha on this, which is Yud is like little, it's like a ring, and a Vav, you know, is a straight line, that's like a finger, and hey is five. So hey is one hand, and another hey is your other hand. So Yud, Vav, hey hey is a ring going on the finger of your two hands, right? That's the wedding of Sivan. That's the wedding of God and the Jewish people. That's Sivan, okay? Now with that imagery, let's go back a month to where we are right now, which is Er, okay. Now Er, now this is my my building on Reb Shlomo's imagery here. Er is the month leading up to the marriage, right? Because Er comes before Siva, okay. So e- mm-hmm. Er, we're traveling toward the Chuppah, if you will, Mount Sinai. So Er, the the permutation of the letters of Hashem's name is Yud Hey Hey Vav. Okay, so. So what you have there is Yud is the ring, right? Yud is the ring, and Heihei is the two hands, and Vav is the finger. So it's like in er, which is the month before the wedding, Hashem is holding the Yud, right? He's holding the ring, and then you have the two hands, and He's waiting to get to the finger, to give the finger, to put the ring on the finger of the Jewish people, right? So, so it's a month of longing. It's a month of longing. That's, that's what it is. God, so to speak, is, is longing to, for this um, union to take place. You know? So, so, um, so that's, that's E-R. And with that in mind, we're doing Parsha's Kedoshim this week. And one of the beautiful Torahs I heard in the name of the Eish Kodesh, is that longing, that what does it mean to be holy? Because Kidoshi means that you should be holy, right? So what, is, what does it mean kedoshin to be holy? Separate. So, so holy, um, according to the Eish Kodesh, is, is, so, so, so what makes something holy? What makes a person holy? And, this is very beautiful, it's very deep. It will sound very simple, but you have to you have to really receive this. What makes a person holy? What is that quality? And the Aish Kodesh says it's the person's desire to want to be holy. Mm. Remember the, the Bal Shem Tov says very famously, You are where your thoughts are. If you want to know who a person is, Look at where where their thoughts are. You are where your thoughts are. So what it is that you aspire to, that is who you are really. You know? Whether you're able to attain that, there's so many different factors that go into that, whether you're able to attain that or not. You know, really a million different variables. But who you want to be, that, that's kind of who you are. And if a person desires to be holy, if, like, what they really want is that sort of closeness with Hashem, then that's who you are, then that's holy. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a beautiful thing, and it's a very precise thing, and it's, it's, it's a very wonderful thing that the Eish Kodesh did by articulating that. Because, you know, you can meet someone who, like, you look at them, and on the outside, they look holy, but they don't feel holy. <laughs> And then you can meet another person who you like they look like what are you who is this guy but you see there's something so special about them. And and oftentimes the difference is, is that this person is like you know he's going through the motions he's totally beaten down he doesn't really aspire to much he's doing good things but he doesn't really aspire to much. And this other person he's he's really his life is not there in so many different ways but you see that he's really aspiring right to to something great and that you can taste that. You can taste that in the energy of the person, you know? So, so that's, that, that's, that's holy, you know? Um, so, so we just did achremos. And achremos, I was looking at the word achremos, and I saw some, some things. So we're on a new subject now, but um, just want to hit the various points. So, "achremos Mos um, means after the death. And it's talking about after the death of uh, Nadav and Avihu, which were Aaron's sons. And, and uh, I, I was just very moved by these words, "achremos," Mos, um, because in, in, in these words, you see something very, very deep. Mos means death. Achre means after. So, "achremos" Mos, after the death. That's, what the, that's the name of the Parsha. But, "achre," which means after, has the word Chai in it, which means life. So, the words "achremos, Mos, what comes after the death? It just says after the death. But you see a hint in the word "achre," which means after. It contains the word Chai, which means life. Which means after death, there's life. So then if you take the words meet, which means death, and chai, right, which means life, right, because both of those words are in achremos, what do the remaining of the letters spell? So I I looked at it and it spells ori, which means my light. And we refer to God as, we say, God, ori v'ishi, you are my light and my salvation. You know, one of the names of God is or in sof, which means life, light without end. So isn't it interesting that ach-re-mos means death, life, and my light? You know, isn't that a total description of, of everything? You know, not only that, so it's so comprehensive. And then I looked at it again, and ach-re-mos, interestingly, begins with the letter aleph, Akhre aleph, and it ends with the letter taf which is the first letter of the olive base and the last letter of the olive base, right? So in other words, it's hinting at that these words contain within them the entirety, like olive through toth, like everything, basically. Which is, the, the essential message of this is that, is that each one of us, we live forever. We live forever. Even after this life, we continue to live. And there's a point that I think really needs to be... Um, publicized. Um, because I think a lot of people are not clear on this point, and this is a very essential, essential, essential piece of information, which is that, you know, many Jews or believing people, you ask them, okay, so so do you believe in an afterlife, right? And they'll say, yes, of course. Has to be. The soul continues to last. By the way, even... even uh, Oh, man, I'm forgetting his name. But he was a German uh, uh, physicist um, who was uh, one of the architects of the, uh, the, um, the, the uh, rocket program for, for Germany during World War II. I want to say Heisenberg, but I'm, I'm not positive that it was him. But anyway, even he talked about life after death because just the, the idea of the energy of your soul, right? You have a life force. There is energy there. And we know that energy doesn't go away. Energy keeps on getting recycled, you know? So even he understood the, 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 the concept of continuing life, right? So even from a, a scientific perspective, there's the notion that where does the energy of your life force go? It has to continue, right? Just because it's not in a body anymore, so what? So I'm just saying there's, even from a scientific perspective, there's, 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 a, there's something to it. But anyway, the point that I want to make is that many people who are believing, they don't, they don't have this piece of information, which is that they think, okay, so the soul continues, but then the person leaves their body, and then they kind of disappear into the infinity of God. And that's kind of it, and then it becomes very abstract and muddled and things like this. But Rabbi Ari Kaplan put it very differently. You know, Torah holds very differently from that, from that perspective. A very crucial difference in terms of how we approach our life, which is that he talks about hardware and software. So hardware, it would be the um, you know the actual physical part of your computer, right? That's the laptop that you hold or the desktop, the monitor, and you know, the CPU that that that, that sits on your desk or under your desk, whatever it is. But then you have the software which has all the information inside the computer, right? Now, you can take, for instance, with a flash drive, you can put in a flash drive, and you can extract all of the information out of the hard drive, right? And so you're preserving all of the information, even as that information leaves the physical boundaries of the computer. You've extracted it. And so Rabbi Kaplan says that this is the appropriate analogy for the body and the soul. That your body is like the, like the computer, like the physical part of it, but that your soul contains all of the information about your personality and your life. And when the soul leaves the body, the soul maintains all of the information about your life and your personality and, and everything like that. In other words... You remain you after a person leaves their body. You remain you as you know yourself now. That doesn't cease after we leave this world. So in other words, this idea that, okay, the soul goes up, and then who knows, and then I disappear, and then it's nice, I guess, uh, I hope, <laughs> right? That, that's, not, that's not where we're at. We're at, no. No. You leave and then you stay you, right? So that hints very strongly, not hints, that, that, that shows very strongly this concept of immortality because you never stop being you, right? So, so that, that's, that's, a very, that's, that's a very strong concept because, because you don't have to be afraid. If you know that, you don't have to be afraid because there's, you know, one of the phrases that I've really been struck by uh, in in current events over the last few years, especially when they talk about um, Iran and the um, missile program in Iran and their nuclear program specifically, and the state of Israel, all of a sudden this phrase like crept up in all the accounts, which was that this is an existential threat right? Which is a very heavy, like a very, very academic, super academic term to use in the popular press for it to become just like, you know, just like an automatic thing to write in every single, you know, press account. That the 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 Iranian nuclear program is an existential threat to the state of Israel. Meaning to say, what does that mean? That Israel can't take it lightly because they literally will not exist anymore. They will not exist anymore, right? So what people think is that death is an existential threat to who I am. But if you realize that death is not an existential threat to who you are, that you continue to be you, then all of a sudden, it it definitely widens or liberates the type of choices that you can make in this lifetime. And you can think very differently about this lifetime with that in mind. You see, one of the things that we have to understand is is that our soul is, is eternal. And a life, even if it's 120 years, anything that's finite, that's put next to something that's infinite, No matter how large the finite thing is, when it's put next to something infinite, it's tiny. It's like a grain of sand. Even if it's very big, next to something infinite, it's nothing. I mean, it's something, but it's like really like a grain of sand. So in other words, this life, even if we live a very long, God willing, full, happy life, that's what it is compared to the life of the soul. That's what it is. So, so, so if if a person wants to be smart, they have to think about what's their next, what what, what is their eternal life going to be, because that's the life that they're going to live forever. And so, this is like a little tiny, like furnishing expedition for our next life. Like, for instance, like imagine you do like a mitzvah, you did like. Something nice for someone, right? So that's like a beautiful. That's like now you have a Van Gogh hanging in your living room forever, (laughs) and it's sort of like, oh, I gave some sadaka. The person really needed some sadaka. I gave them some sadaka. Now, all of a sudden, you have like this waterfall. (laughs) Like it's like in your living room. How'd you get that? I don't know, but there it is. This massive waterfall that you've got, right? So like this whole world is like a furnishing expedition. It's like this cosmic Ikea shop, right, where you get to stop into right before you live in your house forever, right? Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like that's, you know, I was speaking with someone and they said to me, you know, there are different kinds of people. Some, For some people, the next world is not real at all. For other people, the next world is as real as this world. And for other people, the next world is more real than this world, Right? so one has to allow themselves to decide which one do i want to be like i know in my life i i at least when i was growing up i was very ambitious you know i wanted to win this prize and go to that place and this and that and now i'm happy to if i can pay my rent <laughs> you know like i'm very happy you know <laughs> I mean, God willing, I should have more than that, you know? And all of us should, all of us should, you know? Um, but, but what I'm trying to say is, is that my, my, my concept of, of my life and, and, and of this world has sort of widened, you know? And I'm thinking about really the big picture. And it's not, here, here's the point, it's not less ambitious. It's not like my ambition went away. It's more ambitious it's actually, a more focused on what the actual reality of the situation is. Because wh- what is my life forever? Like, can you imagine if I sort of like lie and cheat and steal in order to get more in this world, but this world was like nothing compared to the next world, then what did I win? Maybe I got something great, but what did I win? Or maybe I, you know, didn't do as much, say, in this world. But I was really focused on the next world. Then what did I... I got everything. Right? So so a person has to really, like... And this is, again, a very liberating thought. Because it takes a lot of the pressure and a lot of the, you know... A lot of the angst out of, out of this world, which is, you know filled with angst, (laughs) you know, it just is. There's so many challenges, by design, by design, in this world. It's not, it's not, um, it's not for nothing, you know. So, so let's just use this as a transition point to the next idea. Because this, it it definitely relates, and we're going to deepen the conversation, but it's a bit of a different subject, but it's, it's the same subject. So there's a beautiful book. It's called Song of Tshuva, um, and it's uh, by Rav Moshe Weinberger. Definitely recommend it, and it's uh, it, it's it's a it's an explanation of Oros HaTshuva by um, Rav Kook, and you know Rav Kook was really one of our, our our greatest you know one of just absolutely one of the most unique uh, Torah giants. He was the first chief rabbi of Israel before officially Israel became a state. So he was sort of, while well, it was still called Palestine, right? But he was the first chief rabbi. And he was this awesome, awesome personality. Really, I mean, I, I can I he was he was one of the last sort of like wave from Volosian, which was, you know. Lahavdil, the Harvard-Oxford of, of, of Torah academies in, in Lithuania, in, in Europe, which was really like um, the, 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 where the greatest um, Talmudic study in the Jewish world was being done. And so he was a member of that, which is a very, what we call, Litvish way of thinking. It's very precise and super analytical and everything like that. But meanwhile, he was this awesome mystic and Kabbalist. Awesome. So he had like a totally different, he like, he, he had this totally different side to himself. And when you re- read his writing, um, I'm, t- I'm reading it in the English, but um, you know, it's, the sentences are so lofty and, these, and they're so long that it's, it's very hard to follow. I mean, it's, it's filled with this incredibly ethereal poetry but he's talking, about, he's talking about Torah concepts, but they're so lofty that it's, it's, very, it's, it's, it's often difficult to follow. So what Rabbi Weinberger did is, it's interesting, he does a translation, and you say, okay, he's do, doing a translation from the Hebrew to the English. He does a translation from the English to the English, which is really, well, he's reading it in the Hebrew, obviously. But in this book, he'll give you a section from Rav Cook in English, and then he'll tell you, he'll, then he does his translation in his words of what, what Rav Cook just said, and then he'll explain it at length, and then he'll go back into Rav Cook's words in English, and then give you his translation in English, and then explain it further. Okay, so it's a very amazing book because Rav Cook's real area of special love, special, special love, was the concept of tshuva, And unless you've seen what Rav Kook says about tshuva, you have no idea what tshuva means. You have no idea what tshuva means. Because the way Rav Kook talks about tshuva is it's the ultimate love affair with God. It's the most beautiful thing in the world to read. And it's like the most consummate aspect of the evolution of the soul and the evolution of the world. And he puts it in language and articulates it in a way where it's sort of like, you know, where can I do chuba? Like, get out of the way, I want to do chuva. You know, like, I wanna do chuva too. Uh, you know, you elbow the guy in the face. No, I'm first, you know. So, I mean really it's 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 incredible. It's incredible. And I'm not I'm not I'm not exaggerating at all. Um so, so there are different there are many, many points that he discusses, but one point that I want to discuss because we were just talking about you know, the next world, and what's, what's realist to you, you know what I mean? If you really want to be ambitious, are you being ambitious about, you know, you know the grain of salt? Are you being ambitious about the, the giant meal, you know, that follows the grain of salt? Like, what are you focused on, really, you know? So, with that in mind, one of the points that Rav Cook discusses is, I think this is a very brilliant distinction that, that he's about to suggest, which is between imagination and intellect, and um, and imagination. By the way, imagination mm-hmm. uh, by all the Rebbes, like Rav Nachman and and but but Rav Cook mm-hmm. is picking up on this now, is really a very exalted trait for someone to have great imagination, mm-hmm. because sometimes you know. We associate imagination with just, um, you know, like just imagining silly things or, or things that are fiction, basically. Like you use your imagination to come up with um, a wonderful story for a movie or something like that. But it doesn't really relate to true reality. But the the, the fact is, is that God is infinite and, and, and our minds ultimately compared to God's are finite. So if we want to grasp the largeness of God, we have to use our imagination to try to widen and expand our consciousness to hold the infinity of God or to try to get to higher levels of grasping more and more of God. Now, part of that can be done with intellect, but perhaps more can be done with imagination. So you need imagination. You really need it. Not not just to make a funny story, right? Like, oh, that would be cute, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. No, I need imagination to grasp the largeness of this world. Okay? So, but the problem is, is that there has to be a symbiotic relationship, like a a healthy relationship, between imagination and intellect. Because if imagination outstrips intellect then you begin to imagine things which might be very wonderful and interesting, but they're ultimately not in check with reality. The, the intellect is going to keep track on what is actually real, right? So, so Rav Cook says, like, drops a, a bombshell. That in itself is, I think, an, an amazing analysis right there. But, and from Rav Cook, obviously. But, but he adds something else, which is, this is like, just a little taste of what Rav Cook like, like, gives you, right? You ready for this? He says that the explosive growth in imagination over the last period of time, right, is preparing us for the restoration of prophecy. Isn't that amazing? I have chills saying it. That's that's incredible. That's, that's, that's incredible. In other words, like in this, essentially this evolution of the soul that's taking place over the history of the world with, with, with God at the steering wheel, obviously. That God is widening our minds because he's preparing us to return back to a state of prophecy. That's that's incredible. That's an incredible thought. But, but the modern age has allowed imagination to outstrip intellect. And so what we've gotten off the track in terms of essentially Torah, Essentially, what, what the Torah, what we say Torah meant, that the Torah is truth. And so we've kind of veered from the truth because our imagination has gotten too ahead of our intellect. But the answer is not to, therefore, lessen the imagination. You just have to increase the intellect, which so that would be more Torah knowledge in the world. Right? To catch up with it. But keep both sides going forward, right? They just have to be in check with each other, in balance with each other, you know? So, So, with that in mind, with that in mind, just talking about the expansiveness of the reality and the expansiveness of the world, I want to share a personal story that happened to me yesterday that sort of blew my mind, you know? So... You know, we see really very little of the world. Um, Reb Shlomo gave such a beautiful example uh, one time. I heard him say that that this world is like looking through a keyhole, and and you see through the keyhole someone has a knife and they're about to stab someone else, and you think a murder is about to take place. And meanwhile, what's behind the the door? It's a it's a operating theater, and you have um, You have a surgery that's about to take place, and a life is about to be saved. So from our eyes, it looks like murder, but really what's really happening is someone is being saved. You see? So we see very little bits of the world. Remember, physics postulates dimensions that we can't even see. Right? Um, Both large and small dimensions beyond our entire dimension, but also you have on the subatomic level things that we can't see. So you have dimensions larger than us and dimensions smaller than us. We can't even see it. And biology, you know, um, pasteurization, when you pasteurize milk, right? What, do you, what, what does that mean? You're, you're basically boiling it to get rid of harmful bacteria in it. So who is this created by? Louis Pasteur. Right, he was a French scientist. And he figured out that there's harmful bacteria that's like killing people. If you boil the milk, you kill the the bacteria. And you know what the people said to Louis Pasteur? They said, oh yeah, there are little things in the milk that we can't see with our eyes. Very good, Mr. Pasteur. Like, get a load of this guy, right? (laughs) Right, because people, People think, because I can't see it with my eye, so it doesn't exist. Meanwhile, he creates a revolution in terms of saving people's lives, in terms of making food safe for people, right? So, so we see it. We, we see it in science. It's a, what I'm trying to say is this is not the realm of religion to, to understand that there are dimensions that are present that we don't see. This is the realm of science as well. You see? And it has to be, because there is only one reality. It's not like Torah is telling you one story, and science is telling you another story. They're only, only telling one story. Now, either when they don't agree, like the Rambam says, either you don't understand really what the Torah is saying, or the science is wrong. And by the way, if you read the Science Times in the New York Times... Every week, there's a new story about this advance. And if you read the story, they'll say, and this corrects what we used to think. So science is constantly (laughs) telling you that that they were wrong. Right? But they don't tell you they were wrong. They tell you, now we're right. (laughs) Until the next article where they say, no, 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 now we're right. (laughs) Right? And that doesn't mean science is never right. Science is often right. But it's wrong all the time. So, so. Anyway, because there's only one power in the world. Remember, like Rebbe Nachman says, science <coughs> explains how. Science explains how. Torah explains why. Okay. So, so they're just two different sides of the same thing, right? Um, and then also, a point that I've made that, again, I, I really like to publicize this point, I think it's very, very important, is that, that God always wants to maintain free choice. That's how he's built the world, so that there's always free choice. And we've talked about this many times in many different ways. Like A favorite example is, is about the splitting of the Red Sea. The Torah says itself, the Torah itself says in the, in, the, in the verses of the Torah, and God blew a wind from the east the whole night and the sea split. Okay? Now, we, it also says that Moshe lifted up his staff and the sea split, right? That's, it says that in addition. So, why? Because even with the greatest miracle, arguably, in the five books, the splitting of the sea, at that moment especially, People had the choice of saying, it wasn't Moshe who did it, it was the wind who did it. (laughs) Because God wants to preserve free choice for us all of the time. All of the time. Anytime, Anytime something amazing happens to you, you will always be given the choice to say, that was God. Or, no, 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 the guy, he owed me a phone call. Or, no, 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 I saw him in the marketplace because we live in the same neighborhood. God will always give you the choice to attribute it to some source other than God. That's how God made the world. And we talked about that in the very first letter of the Torah, which is the introduction to of reality, right? Because we say the Torah is the blueprint of reality. The first letter of the Torah is Bez. Bays means two, right? It's the number two, which means free choice. I can either do it one way or I can do it the other way. I have a choice. God gives us a choice in this world. And that's, that's everything, right? So, so let's get back to science and Torah. So God is giving us so much information about the way that he runs the world. But if he told it to us in the name of Torah, we wouldn't have any free choice anymore. Because you say, you mean they're atoms and they're shaped like this and God makes them and he controls the orbits of like, the tiniest things that we, if that was delivered in the name of Torah, and then it's authenticated and we're sending a, a man to the moon and back because of Torah, we wouldn't have any free choice left. So God is giving us all of this information about how He runs the world, but He gives it in the name of science so that we can go, oh, no, no, that's science, that's not Torah. <laughs> It's the biggest joke in the world. God is telling us the most awesome, it's beyond Kabbalah. This is, science is Kabbalah. That's what it is. It's absolutely the definition of Kabbalah. He's giving us the the way he runs the world outright, but he's giving it to us in a way that we can still have free choice. So he calls it science. Oh, no, 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 I don't believe in that stuff. I'm I'm a scientist. I'm a big intellect. So So meanwhile, God is literally flooding the world right now with information of how He runs it, flooding the world. but he's doing it in this brilliant way where He's still able to keep our free choice alive. Okay, so so so, so we have Unseen worlds. We have unseen worlds, but they're there. They're, they're, we see very little of this world. And it says, as we've quoted, it says in the Gomorrah that the next world, they give different, um, different analogies, like two planks, two planks of wood next to each other. That's one analogy. The, the next world, the world of souls in this world. Another one is like two hairs on a head how they're next to each other. That's this world and the next world. But the one that speaks to me the most is another bit of imagery that the Gomorrah says in that same spot, which is it's like cups stacked within each other. You know how like when you're cleaning the table, you take a cup and you put it in another cup? So that's the next world in this world. In other words, it's in, it's in this world. You just can't see it. But it's, it's part of this dimension, but you can't see it. It's like a cup within a cup. We see the outside, but we don't see that this, this next dimension is actually right here. And by the way, the reason why God doesn't allow us to see it is because we, our minds would become deranged. We would become crazy, basically, if we saw all of these things. We, we would lose our minds. Which is, one, which is the reason that one of the ways the central nervous system works is to block out information. Right? Because if we saw all of the information around us, we would lose our minds. So, okay, so with that as an introduction, I want to tell you what happened to me <coughs> yesterday. So, um, so it was, uh, it was Shabbos morning, and um, I'm going to say some of the morning prayers, right? Just to get things going before I go to shul. And... Um, and I always have my sitter in the same spot, right, where, where I do that, and it's not there. I'm thinking, oh, oh, that's right. Last night we were counting the omer, so I brought the sitter to the table. So I go in the next room, um, and I see the sitter. It's by the, by the Shabbos candlesticks, right? It's sitting on the little table there. So as I'm going to grab the sitter... The prayer book? I look the the whole table has been rearranged. We have kind of photos, family, things like this on, on that table. We had a new housekeeper come in and she rearranged the she rearranged the table. So okay, so this is a whole series of things already. My sitter's always in the other room, <laughs> okay? Go to the other room. Now the table's rearranged, that's new, right? And I noticed there's a, a photo there that I never saw, or I don't remember seeing. It's a black and white photo. It's all cracked and everything like this. And it's actually a Xerox of a very old black and white photo, which is like damaged. But you can still see like what the picture is of. So I'm like, oh, I never saw that before. So I pick it up and it's a picture of a Rebbe. And he's like in a, with, surrounded by some people, but his face is very prominent there. And I'm like, who is this, you know? And I read on the bottom and it says, this is of, um, uh, the Rebbe Yisachar uh, Dov of Belz. It's the Belzer Rebbe. He was the second Belzer Rebbe. And actually, the, the current Belzer Rebbe is named after him. Okay? So he's living at the end of the 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s. And i And uh, my wife's great-grandfather was a Belzer Chassid, so that's why I'm thinking that's there, you know. But anyway, I'm picking up the picture, and I'm just like gazing at the face of the Belzer Rebbe, you know, it's like his, I'm just looking at it. And then I think to myself, okay, so I have to learn some Belzer Tours. right? Because, like, after I'll daven, then I'm going to have a little tea, and and uh, I'll learn some, and then off to shul. So I thought, okay, so this morning I'm learning Belzer Torahs. So I go, I get. A, I have a collection of uh, Hasidic Rebis, and um, I take the book, and I sit down, and I turn to the section of the Belzer Rebbe. And this is the first Torah that it says. It's, it's, a, it's a, I'll just get to the end of it without going into what the Torah said. Maybe I'll say that later. But it concludes with the following thing. Right? Well, I'll tell you what the Torah said. It said, you know, the daughter of Paro Finds the basket where Moshe is, you know, the baby Moshe, He's in the Nile, you know, in this basket, right? Trying to save his life because Paro is killing all the babies, and she has compassion on the baby, on Moshe. She raises him like her son, right? So the Belzer Rebbe asks, how could it be? How did that happen exactly? Because her father killed thousands of Jewish babies and bathed in their blood. That's what the midrash says. He bathed in their blood. So how could it be that his daughter is having compassion on a Jewish baby? And he says the reason is because she looked into his face. And that when you gaze upon the face of a Tzaddik, it makes you want to do good things. Now let's just backtrack for a second. I go to this place to find my sitter, and I find the picture of the Belzer Rebbe, and I'm gazing at his face, and I'm thinking, okay, i got to go and learn some Belzer Torahs. And the first Torah is, when you gaze at the face of a tzadda, it makes you want to do good things. Okay. Like, That's crazy, that's crazy. Mm. So, how close is this world and the next world? Or as Reb Shlomo would say, what do we know, what do we know, right? Like it says, achremos right? achremos After death, life, and Ori, my light. Right. So so this is This is the greatness of imagination. Imagination in the Torah context. Imagination in the sense that expanded consciousness. And then when we have the Torah, Torah tenmet, when we have the truth, and then we have the expansiveness of imagination, and they're working in, in sync with each other, then we have the ability to plumb, or to begin to plumb the depth, the depth of what's out there. And we understand that this life that we're in is like this endless, endless, amazing, amazing journey. Right? OK, When do we stop there. This. Here are some questions and answers. Um, the concept changed when you were younger. Was it when you became more observant that you changed, or for other reasons? Yeah. Well, my my ambitiousness changed. In that you know, I I didn't want to. You know, it's like sort of like went from material to spiritual. Well, yes, but it's sort of like I mean, I'm trying to think of an analogy that that's not too dumb. But it's sort of like you know. You know like maybe a person wants to just kind of run i don't I don't know how to phrase it exactly like imagine saying, you know, this is my house, right and you're like, "Wow, so now you're the big person in the house, right, or you could be the president of the entire country <laughs> that the that the that the actually the the jurisdiction that you could actually Um, sort of like like have uh, some sort of influence over is so much more expansive than your house you know so your house could be like oh yeah I want to be president of this company so that's nice but when you realize that surrounding that company is an infinite terrain like is it really ambitious to want to just be president of the company? If you actually want to be ambitious, you have like something a million times the size of the company, which is available to you. You know, you have your eternal life, the life after this world. So, um, Torah is amazing in that it really wants you to get this world right. So it doesn't like... One of the, one of the beautiful things is, is that as it's talking about the next world, it absolutely emphasizes this world. Like I heard about two so-called religious people, right? And someone was an eyewitness to this. It's an incredible story to me. They were driving, and they were driving a little bit recklessly, and they hit a parked car. And then they went like this. Gosh meaning physicality, things of this world, and they drove on. <laughs> now, that's great if someone hit their car, <laughs> and they told the person who hit their car, and they said, ah, Gashmius, you know, why do I have to be concerned about the appearance of my car? And then they drove on. But you can't hit someone else's car and say, Gashmius, physicality, <laughs> right? Like, that's a completely against the Torah, that attitude. A thousand percent against the Torah. Distortion. You know? So 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 the Torah really wants you to get relationships in this world right. And that's why and I heard this explanation, it's it's actually a fantastic explanation, but you have to really try to understand it because otherwise it, it can sound very unsatisfying. Which is why the five books don't really talk about the next world. Not so much, they allude to it here and there, you know they you'll find it you'll find it 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 does exist in the in the in the in the in the five books you'll find it, but it's absolutely not emphasized at all, but if you then read the Talmud and you read things like this and then the prophets and everything like that, you realize that the concept of the next world is ten thousand percent part of our vision, not even a question right so so then if that's the case, and it's as, big as, it's as big as what I'm talking about right now, then it should be all over the five books. But that's the amazing thing about Judaism, is that remember what Reb Shlomo used to say, the hardest thing in the world is to have your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground at the same time. Right? Because most people who have their head on the clouds, they don't have their feet on the ground. And most people who have their feet on the ground, they don't have their head in the clouds. <laughs> So to be very imaginative and expansive and everything like that, but at the same time be very focused and on time for appointments and paying your bills, things like that. Very rare to find that combination, right? So, but the Torah gives you the roadmap to having that that combination. It focuses you very much on the minutia of this world, while simultaneously telling you about the infinity of the. Of the, of the olomos, as we say, as the, of, the, of the spiritual dimensions, right? But if a person is smart, they're saying, okay, well, where, where is my in? Where is my relationship? How do I fit into this? Well, I'm in this world. But wait a second, I'm in, in the next world too. And the next world is forever. So how am I prior, prioritizing my, my time in this world? Right? I, and, and if I'm truly ambitious, I want to do it to, to, to absolutely maximize my, you know, my situation. And that doesn't mean, obviously, now I'm, I'm just out for myself and I'm not doing it l'shem shemayim. I'm not talking about any of those things. But this is an element that should go into a person's thinking in terms of how they approach life. Dear, yeah. like, When I get to the other world, how am I, I going to look? Like, did I waste my time? What did I do? So, for me, having children is like a big deal now. Like, if time passes and marriage doesn't happen, and I come to the other world and there were no children, how is that going to be? Well, it says, it says in, the, in, the, um, in the Gomorrah yeah. that there are certain questions in Gomorrah Shabbos, there are certain questions that a person's asked. And one of them is, did you try to have a fin? It didn't say, did you have a fin? Or how many kids do you have? It says, did you try to have a fin? It's the only thing that it says. And if a person says, yeah, you know, but then a person has to have tried. Meaning to say that, you know, if someone suggested a shidduch, that they went on the date. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because they're going to say, hey, look, there's like, a lot of dates here. <laughs> they didn't go on any of these. You know? It's like... <laughs> so, so a person just has to have tried. You know? And that's it. And then they're, then they're clean. Then they're clean in terms of that area. But a person also has to understand, and again, these are not just words to make someone feel good. This is very real, what the Torah says, that a person has many, many, many children. Meaning to say, anyone who is a student of yours is, is considered a child of yours. And not only that, but any good deed that you did, any mitzvah that you did, that mitzvah is considered a child and that's that's very real that's not that 's not like kind of like, "Oh, this is to make me feel good it 's not because remember what we were talking about energy, and I always like to give this just as an introduction when you hug someone that you love, when you hug them when you give them, give them a hug, you can feel something coming out of you 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 feel something coming out of you that 's a life force that's coming out of you right When you do a mitzvah, especially when you do a mitzvah with your all of your heart. Energy comes out of you. Now, it says in Pirkei Avos, when you do a mitzvah, you create an angel. That's what it's talking about. That's the angel. The the energy and the enthusiasm that you do into a mitzvah, that's energy that creates an angel which remains an advocate for you and continues to exist. It doesn't go away. It, It continues to occupy and populate the world. And that's a child. That's a real child. It's not, it's not nothing, you know? And for married couples, I'm talking about now maybe people who are not married. For married couples who haven't had children, right? It says by Avraham and Sarah that, remember, they didn't have a child for many, many years. Decades, decades and decades and decades they didn't have a child. But, it, but the Zohar says, I heard in the name of the Zohar, that every time that they were together, it's true they weren't, they weren't making a baby like with a body but they were making souls. In other words, something was happening in terms of their, you know, relating to each other, and, and there was something being made. And you wanna hear something even more wild? The souls of future converts. Because it says, when, when people convert to Judaism, they're allowed to say, Elokei Abraham, Elokei Yitzchak, Fulei Yaakov, you know, that uh, that 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 we are the we are the children of them. Well, if you are not a biological child, then how can you call Abraham your father? And the answer is is because they made your soul. So you really are a direct child of Abraham. You really are. It's not so it's I'm not, not a it. joke. Not yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So so yeah. Yeah, so in, in other words, we, we shouldn't kid ourselves about how many children we have. All of us have a lot of children, you know? You know, so. Okay.